0: The idea of embodied cognition, you know, that at that, the life of our, that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So fundamentally, it's just the idea that our bodies and brains work and live and function together. So, you know, 90% of the serotonin our body generates is generated in our gut. You know, there's more and more research about our microbiome and its impact on disease, health, well being. The idea that when you, you know, <laughs> when you hold a pencil, in your mouth, and it activates smile muscles, and then you're tested on psychological batteries, you will report being happier. If you hold it between your lips and you activate frown muscles, right? You if you find yourself sadder, give somebody a warm cup of coffee, they will rate their professor as more friendly and outgoing. Give them a nice cold glass of water and they they rate them as more distant. Like it's literally laughable how literally our bodies shape our our body-brain connection and therefore our mind and, and mental states. You're just listening to
1: Jamie Wheel. What's up, my friend? And welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, celebrity trainer and high-performance health coach, Ted Rice. This is a podcast for men and women who are looking to boost their energy and upgrade their health. So get ready to learn proven health, fitness, and mindset strategies to unlock your full potential. And that's what today's episode is all about. It's another best of episode. And it's with Jamie Wheel of the Flow Genome Project. And if you don't remember my interviews with Stephen Kotler, because he's the other side of the Flow Genome Project, they're all about this state of flow. And the state of flow is something I'm very passionate about because it's the thing that so many of us are missing in our lives. We'll work out, we'll eat well, we'll take supplements, we'll upgrade our sleep, we'll manage our stress. But many of us won't step outside our comfort zone, but that is where all the growth is. If you're looking to become a high performer, you must learn about this concept and implement it in your life. And Jamie is gonna talk all about how to do that, all about what Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, special operators in the military are using, and what Maverick scientists, what they're using to upgrade their mindset, their perspective to lead to these amazing breakthroughs or states of high performance. You're going to learn all about it today. And before we get to the interview, I want to tell you that I put together the most comprehensive free science-based supplement guide I've ever seen. I (laughs) spent so many hours working on it. It is something that I'm very proud of, and I know you're going to love it too. I tell you exactly what it is why you should bother using it or whether you should use it or not i tell you exactly how much to take i tell you whether there's any drug interactions you need to be aware of and then i tell you which supplement i recommend and if you'd like that free guide where i go over everything from blood sugar control muscle growth workout performance high blood pressure and more, like nootropics, actually, I should throw that in since we're talking about high performance and boosted cognition today, go to www.legendarylifepodcast.com forward slash supplement guide and get it now for free. All right. I know you're going to love this episode with Jamie Wheel. So let's step into today's episode. Jamie, really an honor to have you. You're someone who I look up to. You're someone who is a leading expert on human performance. You work with Stephen Kotler as the director of the Flow Genome Project. I've had Stephen on a couple times. And mm. just a pleasure to finally connect with you.
0: Hell yeah. Glad to be here, man.
1: Absolutely. And you're coming out with a new book, Stealing Fire. This, I want this conversation to be more than just the Flow 101 Talk because sure. we've had Steven on to talk about Rise of Superman. But before we get into that, we haven't had you on the show. Can you tell the listeners about, well, first of all, how you describe what it is that you do?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, you know, at the Flow Genome Project, we focused on the science and training of. Peak performance. And so we work with, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of folks that really value being at the top of their game in their field, beginning with people who risk kind of life and limb. So special operations community, extreme athletes, that kind of thing. And then also transitioning into executives and people really, you know, impact entrepreneurs. And executive leaders, the folks that have realized, hey, it actually matters how I manage my energy, my focus, my body, my brain in service of whatever it is I'm doing in the world. And I need to be able to do that with a long-term game plan in mind. So that's fundamentally who we work with as far as clients. And then on the research side, we do our best to both kind of collate and integrate, synthesize, and even accelerate the Research in a bunch of different domains, ranging from you know psychology to neurobiology to kinesiology—you sort of you name it—across all these disparate disciplines. What happens when you put them all together into one high-functioning human? And then how can we use and put together the varying insights, which sometimes live in sort of little fragmented silos? No one's talking to each other. If you don't read the particular peer-reviewed journal, you would never have heard about it. How do we put all those together into simple, actionable? plans of practice.
1: Yeah. Well stated and really excited for this conversation. Stephen has this great story about how he got Lyme disease and started surfing and that sent him on this discovery of flow, this journey to discover flow for himself. And mm-hmm. I'm really curious, what is your story? How did you get into <laughs> the science of optimal human performance? What was yeah. it that inspired you?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, it was those experiences that started for me with action sports, like skiing, mountain biking, windsurfing, kite surfing, those kind of things, A live music events, dabbling with various entheogens, you kind of, you know, put all those three buckets together and was like, okay, this feels super alive, real grounded, amazing, magic, mythic living, what the hell is going on here? So my inquiry actually was backwards. I, I started with the kind of cultural piece of like, oh, once you find yourself in, you know, what, what in the book Stealing Fire, we categorize as ecstasis, which is a big blanket category, which includes flow states, but it also includes any other practices that get you into a non-ordinary state of consciousness where you have an experience of selflessness and timelessness and even effortlessness and most importantly richness like you get jacked into the information layer and how whatever you want to call that and people have all kinds of names for it from the mythic to the religious to the philosophical to the technical but let's just you know for now use a pretty bland placeholder of the information layer there's just a fuck ton more info out there (laughs) when we get out of our waking state consciousness and typically it's pretty awesome slash terrifying so i became super curious as to oh What's going on here? And that's what I pursued it through uh, historical anthropology, through literature, philosophy, comparative religion. I was like, okay, where have there been times in the past where folks uh, had their finger on this pulse? And then that led me into developmental psychology, and then that led me into the neuroscience and neurobiology. I mean, honestly, I don't give a hoot about the neurobio. It just happens to be the flavor of the month slash year slash decade, so it becomes a helpful translating story in the vernacular of the people that are interested in learning it in this way. But you can come at this through half a dozen different pathways. It could be the Budo traditions, the martial arts. It could be the monastic traditions and contemplative life. It could be the tantric yogic traditions. It could be the psychonaut traditions. It could be the action sports spaces. And really, what that's what I think we find so interesting. What we're so psyched to talk about in our book is, hey, it ceases to be about which subculture or tribe you're from these days. We have access to the keys to the kingdom. And once you realize that underneath... These surface experiences and the specific doorways you walk through with all the tribal affiliations, right? Once you walk through the door, you're in the same goddamn place and the neurobiology is practically identical. I mean, there's some unique and important differentiations, but in the same way that like Joseph Campbell came up with the hero's journey, right? And he articulated that it was the sort of, it was the monomyth that, you know, underneath many, many world traditions, there was a singular story, right? And he caught a, you know, a ton of appropriate flack from anthropologists in the actual field where like, dude, you're steamroll a bunch of variations and difference and you know and that's not that cool. But the flip side is is having that monomyth idea unlock made it accessible for a ton more people. Mm. And in some respects, we're offering the the the, neurobi- the neuropsychobiological hero's journey alternate, which is like, there's only one story here, man. And this is what it looks like. It looks like a move from beta waves and prefrontal cortical activity and norepinephrine and cortisol to slow alpha to theta to a deactivation of your prefrontal cortex and a hyperactivization of lateral connectivity in your brainwave states. It, it includes norepinephrine, dopamine, cortisol, Nandamide, oxytocin, and serotonin. You get you get these pumping through your systems. Probably even some tryptamines if you're really playing the game skillfully, right? And this is what it looks like from the inside. And it doesn't matter. So, you know, in our book, we're focusing on three categories. We're saying, hey, flow states, whether sort of creatively or athletically pursued, you know, by yourself or with others in in kind of collective flow states. So that's one subcategory. The next would be meditation and mystical states. And these days, you have to sort of include not just sitting and praying or sitting on a cushion, right? You would also include sexually derived ones if they're, you know, intentional and purposeful, as well as smart tech and biosensors. So, transcranial magnetic stimulation, you know, EEG stim, all, all the kind of neuro and biofeedback that's going on that can put you into those states. And then finally, psychedelic and pharmacological states. So, you put all those those three categories together, you realize, well, that makes sense, having just, you know, laid out the little argument we did here. But each of those categories, you know, you've got flow states, was artists and athletes… You know, psychedelic states were hippies and ravers, Mm -hmm. and meditation and mystical states, right, were monks and mystics. And virtually none of those three tribes talk to each other or think very much of the other ones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you end up with fragmentation at the user level. You also end up with, you know, double, triple that same fragmentation at the academic level. So the researchers are so way down in their tunnels, they don't know or care what's Someone in the field right next door to them is doing. And they're certainly not connecting and asking the, the synthetic questions. What's next? And so what we realized is there was this massive underground movement that really strangely connected like stakehead CrossFitters at the biohacking conference, right. with suburban moms furtively reading Fifty Shades of Gray on their Kindle, right? With Burning Man entrepreneurs and and you know people raging in the desert, right? With the monastic traditions, with all these things, we're like, holy shit, it's all the same thing. And so, you know, so so once we saw that, we're like, well, how big is this? If this is really true, and if you can use the neurobiology as kind of your skeleton key or Rosetta Stone, right, it lets you translate, right, a bunch of foreign languages what are we looking at here? And we did the research. We spent about six months doing the economics of it. We're like, look, you know, Peter Drucker, I think once said, he said, you know, tell me what you value and I might believe you, but show me your calendar and your bank account and I'll show you, what you really value, <laughs> right? And so we did. We looked, we're like, okay, where are people spending their time and money? In any behaviors that put them into this neurobiological zip code. And what we found, so we we considered... You know, basically licit and illicit substances, that's an easy one, state shifters, but including things like caffeine, alcohol, all the kind of normal stuff, all the way through OxyContin, psychedelics, you name it, right? How are people trying to get out of themselves with compounds? How are people trying to get out of themselves with therapy, self-help, personal growth, huge market? How are they trying to do it with entertainment, everything from gambling to adventure sports, to amusement parks, to all this. I mean, bungee jumping is not a skill-based activity, right? You pay the money, you take that jump, because for 15 seconds, right, you're out of your head. Same with the roller coasters, all those things. And then all the way even to social media distractions, all that kind of stuff. So we added it up. It was $4 trillion, $4 trillion a year. We spend twice as much trying to get out of our own heads as there are galaxies in the known universe. So you're like... Holy
1: Isn't smokes! It, yeah, <laughs> that's an right. incredible amount to unpack, Jamie. And you you said so much <laughs> there. And just in case someone may be a bit like, "Whoa, that is a lot thrown at me," and a lot of disparate ideas all put together. And I love the mm-hmm. analogy with the mono myth, right? Mm. Because in in spite of the criticism that you said that mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell received for it he was looking at, Hey, there are more similarities here than differences. And that was the focus. And that's what you're saying with these paths to attaining this state of transcendence. And I want to take things back a little bit, just so people even know why, why I asked you to be on the show is because much (laughs) like when you shared your story, I didn't even know there was a name for flow stage or that, that experience. And you know, I've had a lot of things happen to me in my life. I don't know if you had read my story or not, but people are always, you know, I I lost a lot of people. My mother died. My brother Mm. was kidnapped and murdered. My sister committed suicide.
0: So
1: yeah, it's it's a crazy story, but people are always asking me like, what did you do to get through it? Like, how did you do it? How did you overcome those things? How are you still like happy, positive person? And Mm -hmm. After I started learning about Stephen Kotler and what, and Jamie Wheel and the flow genome project and started learning about flow. I'm like, I didn't even know there was a name for it. I just mm-hmm. went after exercise. I tried to modify my biology with taking supplements. I had mm-hmm. tried talk therapy before. i had been to psychologists, but it wasn't until I started going after experiences yeah. that I started to change as a person. Those states that I was in before started to shift. And those down states started to become less and less. And I want to go into an idea that you talked about in your voice and exit talk, which is really that we've been going about things backwards with personal development, with psychology, with peak performance. Can you talk a little bit about how we've been focusing on the cognitive approach and this psychological approach and now you're proposing that we start to address our underlying biology right we address how the human body is supposed human brain is supposed to learn by experience
0: yeah sure i mean in some respects that's kind of the thrust and point of the whole book and really of our of our whole work at flow genome project which is just the idea of embodied cognition you know that that Can the life of our,
1: that yeah. yeah for
0: sure so fundamentally it's just the idea that our bodies and brains work and live and function together so you know 90% of the serotonin our body generates is generated in our gut you know there's more and more research about our microbiome and its impact on disease health well-being the idea that when you you know, when you hold a pencil in your mouth and it activates smile muscles, and then you're tested on psychological batteries, you will report being happier. If you hold it between your lips and you activate frown muscles, right? You if you find yourself sadder, give somebody a warm cup of coffee, they will rate their professor as more friendly and outgoing. Give them a nice cold glass of water and they they rate them as more distant. Like it's literally laughable how literally our bodies shape our our body-brain connection and therefore our mind and, and mental states. You know, and, and even a simplest example these days is like when they figured out that Botox, Botox prevents depression, you know, because I can't, I can't, I can't frown. I can't smile. I can't do anything else, but I can't frown. So I just don't feel as sad. And interestingly, nor can I feel anything about you. I can't feel empathy either because the micro muscles in my face, which my mirror neurons normally activate because that's what we are. We're clever monkeys and we mimic each other and right? I can't mimic you. I don't feel your pain or your pleasure, right? right? So. So you just reduce it just to those kind of like super simple examples. You're like, holy shit. So we can spend a bunch of time talking about my feelings. I can spend a bunch of time animating my stories, but I remain stuck in my stories, right? So even if I quote unquote succeed, I've just won at the game of getting energy from other people around me to validate my story, my narrative. And you realize, oh, There's a longer lever. There's a place of much greater leverage and impact underneath all that. And if I can change them, and most of us do it intuitively, people who have a running routine or a workout plan, I think that's a huge part of why CrossFit has been so successful, right? They create community bonding, mutual accountability, and then boom, they work it out. Like work it out. Work it all out. You know, work out your pain, work out your problem, work your questions, work out your answers, work out your hopes, dreams, and 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 grief. Work it out, and it's not. And then what's left? You can trust is your work still to be done, Mm -hmm. right at the psychological level. It's not that we skip it; we just become sort of and Mister Spocks. But it is to say, right, (laughs) that there's a metric shit ton of it that we're just being Woody Allen about, just forever nattering and nattering and nattering, and it just doesn't go away. In fact, we get more stuck in it. So the thought with embodied cognition and the thought with what we would propose is do a whole, you know, body-mind-spirit integration and work at the lowest level you possibly can to get the maximum leverage. And only when you've exhausted all that low-hanging fruit, right, do you roll up to the next level to address it? And an example, you know, that that comes to mind after you sharing a little bit about your personal experiences and life story is that moments outside our waking consciousness, so moments where I kind of set aside my burdens and my worries and my inner story, profoundly healing, even when they have only happened once in life. So Willoughby Britton was at Brown University. She studied near-death experiences, super traumatic. I nearly died, holy shit. And in fact, those people ended up reporting off-the-chart life satisfaction and their brain structure and brain-firing patterns changed. So you have a singular event, really tricky to repeat, but there you go. Then roland griffith at johns hopkins was like okay i can't do that i can't nearly kill people to see if it helps them but let me take terminal cancer patients he gave them three grams of psilocybin so a pharmaceutically prompted tunnel of light experience so they have it they have an ecstatic experience right that he could control and modulate and three grams was exactly the right amount it was enough to give people a profound experience with not enough to have them have any kind of psychological casualties and you know eight out of ten reported it as as One of the top five most meaningful experiences in their life, four out of 10 reported it was the most meaningful, you know, and life changing. And then they extended that to smoking cessation. They extended that to a host of things. And then you realize, okay, interesting. So now we've got random trauma, near-death experience. You've got pharmacologically prompted or primed. Then on the West Coast, they had a bunch of U.S. Marines, PTSD sufferers, deeply struggling and having a really hard time shaking it off. Those guys did five weeks of flow, action sports, surf training, plus a little talk therapy to help them unpack and make sense of it, comparable results. They did MDMA therapy with childhood abuse, sexual trauma, and again, war trauma. Those guys had one to three sessions. And then with meditators, similar protocols, meditative practice for 12 weeks all had comparable results. So you realize, oh, accidental, neurochemical, physiological, in the case of like flow states or contemplative, each one of those helped people step outside their waking consciousness, helped them get into a more integrated and embodied state. And then when they get back into their day-to-day monkey suits, even with past pains and struggles, they carry that load a little lighter. And for many of those results are so profound that, I mean, they outpace the prescription pharmaceuticals, Prozac and Zoloft, right? They outpace years of talk therapy. They outpace all of the normal, right, interventions that haven't really been working. And they really point the way to a future where you're like, oh, wow, there's just there's a lot of other tools in our toolkit in order how to optimize, heal, and then really excel and thrive.
1: Yeah, in- incredible and just amazing how all those different approaches all have very similar results. And yeah, isn't it? I wanted to ask you, like you were talking about, you, you made it such a great comment there about doing the Woody Allen thing. And uh-huh. over analyzing. And why do you think in your experience, in your research, why do we go there first? Why do we use the story? Why do we tell ourselves the story? Why do we overanalyze? Why do we experience that paralysis by analysis and think that it's some book or we need to talk or keep talking, but nothing changes if some people go to it intuitively? Uh-huh. For the person who's listening right now, who is doing the Woody Allen thing, how mm-hmm. can you help them shift into this more experiential, this, this embodied
0: cognition, as you call it? Well, I mean, the first thing you got to do is just conduct the experiment, right? You got to, you got to try some different things. So typically, you know, we will, we'll wait until we're feeling good to go out for a run or a walk in the sunshine in the woods. You know, sure. when we're feeling glum, we'll sit on the couch and channel surf. We wait until after we got the job promotion. Right. Or, you know, or the raise to, to walk tall and shoulders back and head high instead of doing that going into your performance review. Right. We often ask backwards it and we only express and emote in powerful and, you know, in empowered and vital ways once we're already feeling that way mm. instead of the other way around. Even, I mean, even, you know, sexual relationships. I mean, how many people in couple, in long term coupleship or short term coupleship negotiate by withholding? sexuality is an exclamation point at the end of a good day instead of it's our practice. We bow under the mat because we know we're going to be better. I mean, I don't wait to say, I don't look at myself in the mirror at night and say, hey, are my are my teeth shining bright? Do I look like Potsy Weber on Happy Days? I think I'll floss tonight. You know, no, you floss because you're like, if I do this long term, it's a good thing. And for anybody that has a semi-regular workout practice, you don't like, you don't be like, oh, do I feel like a million bucks today? I think I'll go work out. It's like, no, 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 I work out in the mornings because right? Long-term benefits. I, I value this. So the, the, the real connection is, I mean, it's twofold. It's one, we cannot solve. I mean, the whole thing of everybody quotes this in like pop psych in new age, like Einstein's, you can't solve a problem at the level that created it. Right. And they're almost sure. always about to then tell you, you need to get higher and more conscious and this and that's like, well, bullshit. Maybe it's just, you can't, you maybe just go down a level. So right. instead of worry gutting psychology, like if I've got psychological problems, of them are usually just the wallpaper of my mind. They're usually reflections on my energy state in my whole system. It's not actually what's up. So if I mean, my quick litmus test on that is if I suddenly find myself really bummed, hijacked, pissed off, whatever, stressed out, whatever it is about a given issue, I just ask myself, has anything materially changed in my understanding of this subject from yesterday or the day before? And nine times out of 10, it hasn't, right? (laughs) In which case, then I've just isolated the variables. I'm like, oh, this is me. So what has changed in the last 24 or 36 hours is me, and it's something to do with my sleep, my rest, my energy, whatever. Therefore, the, the quickest place to fix is to go back and just work at that level of my system. And so that's one thing to do is get out of your psychology and get into your physiology because it's quicker, right? And it requires a lot less worry, gutting, and hand-wringing. Now, the flip side is is get into your psychology, I mean, get into your physiology, your body, not out of guilt or vanity, Mm. right? I mean, the number of times people's motivators are either I was a tubby cunt over the weekend just watching football and eating Doritos and I need to atone for my sins with a six-mile jog around my neighborhood in the morning. Like, how soul-destroying is that? Or I want to look good. Mm-hmm. And I like working out and I like the pump or I like to fit in my jeans or whatever it's going to be, some bullshit cosmetic thing. I mean, I might be a broken wreck, you know, kinetically, but I look the way I'm tr- I think I should look with my beach muscles. And so get rid of the cosmetics and aesthetics and get into kinesthetics and realize, oh, I you know, have the right relationship with why do I move my body? I move my body not because I'm a jock or I'm fit or I'm I'm atoning right move it because we're humans and that's what we do and the more we like you can't be any more conscious than your movement patterns so get off right i mean get off mechanical machines get off linear repetitive movements you know get complicated get multi-axial get whole body get you know be able to roll be able to stand your head be able to do handstands like move and move into Allegedly, because we get more proprioceptive inputs, we get more somatic training, we get more vestibular awareness, and we got more neural nets firing in sequence. And then our body brain can hold more in our mind. So what happens when I feel psychologically whacked out? It's like oh, it's basically like a low end, you know, low oil light. Mm-hmm. When I have stress stories, when I have fear-based responses, all those things, it's just basically my system saying, hey, dude, you're low on juice. You need to go into protective mode. So I can either animate all my stories about that. And usually be pissed at someone or needy or whatever it is, or I can seek to, I can address it at the level of my, you know, my root physiology. So those would be the two games to play would be don't dwell on our psychology just because it's the only place we think we know where we are and don't have such a superficial relationship to our physiology, like embrace embodiment because we're humans, you know, and do that. first.
1: I think you would appreciate this, Jamie. You know, I'm into the gymnastics training. I'm, you know, did Brazilian jujitsu for a long nice. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I awesome. can't stand like <clears throat> doing bicep curls and that type of thing. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll have people who I do have that. They're always wanting to look in the mirror, right? Oh, I got to look yeah. at myself. And yeah. what I have them do is close their eyes with certain exercises where balance isn't going to be too much of an issue to go a little bit more inside to feel what's working as you said proprioception right start to yeah. feel where your body is start to feel how your body moves and stop focusing on, on what you see in the mirror mirror is uh training is kind of overrated good sometimes for checking your technique but very cool Jamie those are great things right And I think it's a bit counterintuitive. And I want to share a quick story. I got into an argument with Giselle the other day and I was angry. I did a meditation app, right? The 10-minute headspace meditation. I -hmm. still had the same issue, but Mm -hmm. the emotional energy, however you'd want to define it, was lower, right? Mm -hmm. So I still had the same conflict but I didn't have the emotional charge around it. And I think people are walking around right now. They have that emotional charge, even with the election that just happened, even with, you know, things that are happening in their lives. I think managing our emotions, it's just people feel like, you know what, it's okay. I feel this way. I'll let it out because I feel this way instead of checking themselves and saying, like you said, it's just the oil, low oil light is on. You need to top off. You need to start putting in better quality gas. You need to pump up your tires, put in the synthetic oil instead of the cheap stuff. Jamie, I'd love to change gears just a little bit because you talked about I want to go down this rabbit hole a little bit deeper. You talked about how, there are three studies you named in your voice and exit talk about using biometrics to predict behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I heard that it was such a powerful reminder about like how we walk around thinking like, Oh, this is me. I I have this belief. I stand for this. And and then kind of like, there's all that stuff that's running in the background with the, the more ancient parts of our brain it gives more of a tell than we think. It's more a control than we think. Can you talk sure. about the biometrics and, and how these studies used biometrics to predict? Do you remember what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that a lot of that was uh, some of our colleagues at Advanced Brain Monitoring. But, you know... To set this all up, our waking conscious mind and, and uh, David Eagleman, uh, who wrote Incognito and several other books on neuroscience, he's done PBS's series on the brain. He's, he's a friend of ours and, and on our board, he's a total badass, I mean, renaissance man and just crushes in his field. But he, he writes really convincingly as to bottom line is, is we're not who we think we are and our conscious mind is fundamentally late to the party. So it's as if there's, you know, revolutions and riots in the street, and we're picking up the Sunday edition of the newspaper and reading the headlines. Like, that's our conscious mind reporting on the week, as it were, right? So we think that, like, that tiny little slice that we are self-aware of in real time is us. And it's not. It's not even close. And so there is this vast, you know, probably whatever, I mean, 95% of our sensory inputs, our data processing, our responses, all that stuff is happening below the waterline. So that's point one. Right, I mean, and you can go way further into that. You can be like, oh, we're 90% non-human cells. You know, we're cycling out cells all of our lives. What is persistent in our selfhood? You know, you can can kind of go down the thought experiments uh, of of how little we are, who we think we are. But just suffice it to say, we're multivariable organisms with a somewhat simulated sense of partial selfhood at any given time, right? So what's interesting about this research on precognition, meaning that by measuring your physiology, so you just what's happening in your body and brain in the present, it can be uncannily predictive of future behaviors and future psychological behaviors. So we won't know we're going to think and feel and act a certain way, but by measuring us in the present, the researchers can predict it pretty much bang on. So a simple example is how long does it take you to get into REM sleep when you're sleeping? And basically the longer it takes, this is this, a little counterintuitive, but the longer it takes me to get into REM, fundamentally the happier I am mm. in my life. If it takes me less than 60 minutes to get into REM sleep, it's almost a statistical certainty that in the next six months, I'm going to fall into mild to major depression.
1: I did not know that. Well, so you can, can just talk a lot can, about ding, sleep.
0: So Yeah, exactly. So ding, you can just be like, hey, buddy, it might be a rough road ahead what do you mean? I'm fine. I'm on top of the world. Well, just sit tight. And sure enough, people end up in the dumps. Six months later, more specific ones, you know, there was a study with the US Navy, put a bunch of submariners in a simulated nuclear sub, and then just watched their biometrics. And they could tell which teams were novices, which teams were intermediates, and which teams were experts without any other identifying data based on the physiology of the group and how they interacted with each other. They could also see who was sticking out like sore thumbs and it needed to be swapped out like that was the lame one in the team. They did it at Isade Business School, which the Wall Street Journal, it's in Madrid, maybe Barcelona, but definitely Spain. The Wall Street Journal you know, ranked it top business school in the world for like three years. They were doing it with emergent leaders, so MBA students. And so they're still students. They don't know how they're going to actually perform in the job and who's going to really show up as a leader, all this kind of stuff. Within... 30 minutes of giving them you know, a business case study, they were able to predict who were the emergent leaders. It wasn't what they said. It wasn't like a linguistic textual analysis. It wasn't how much they spoke. It wasn't the tone or, or volume. It was how the other people's physiology in the room responded. So fundamentally, it was their ability to control their own nervous systems and to then synchronize or regulate the nervous systems of those people around them. And then that became predictive. And then DARPA did a study. Yeah. I mean, you're like, okay, wow. So really, if you're on a fast MBA executive track, you should be studying, you know, breath work and yoga and biofeedback because there's that whole thing. I think it gets attributed to Galileo, but I don't think it was. Although I think, I think he had the same insight, which was he went into a clockmaker shop and he saw all the pendulums on the wall, you know, kind of like Geppetto's clock shop and realized, oh, all the clocks synchronized to the one with the biggest pendulum. And he was like, what's up with that? Right. And so the same thing happens with people is so the person who has the most clarified and entrained neurophysiology sets the rhythm for everybody else. It's just like the bass drum in a rock band. Right. So who's laying down the bass line will bring everybody to their groove. And so that, that alone is really worthwhile. Most people spend all their time polishing PowerPoint presentations. And what am I going to say? And hear what, what words are on the top of my slide? And how do I get to the this, that, and the other? It's like, no, 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 breathe. Right. Move. Be open in your stance and your expression. Make eye contact. Think about the quality and tone of your voice. Right. Think about breathing from your diaphragm, like you much more like, well, you know, all the world's a stage and, you know, men and women just p- players upon it. Right. I mean, it's, it's that. And then the final one, Dapo did a study with a pretend nonprofit. And it was a woman standing up talking about the perils of bullying and a tear-jerking story of you know a fictional childhood, but no one in the audience knew that. And everyone in the audience was wired up to biofeedback. And they could predict with 70% certainty who was then going to be moved to reach into their pocket and donate money to that cause. And then they did the full battery of psychological testing, like the, the whole works, kitchen synced them, and they only got another 12 points of certainty, predictive certainty. So 70% for just reading biometrics or 82% with full psychological batteries and diagnostics and demographic assessment. So you realize, oh wow, <laughs> parts of us know what's up long in advance of our conscious waking selves having any idea. So you would then if you reverse that, you're like, well, if I can move and modulate and and tune those parts <laughs> that are my early warning systems, I can steer around big potholes and cliffs and that's the same with you know the REM sleep that's the same with any of these things so that fundamentally shifts i mean if you you know if you really let that sink in you're like well then who the hell am i (laughs) right who the hell am i if my neurophysiology in advance is predicting and dictating in a lot of ways my inner the life of my mind that i would swear to god is me in the moments it arises when really that's the last that's the last piece of the puzzle to slot into place. So David Eagleman, right, he talks, he, he has a great phrase. He, he, if anyone hasn't seen his TED talk from the main stage uh, two years ago, he, he talks about um, our umwelts, right, which is reality that we can perceive. So dogs can hear dog whistles and sharks can detect electromagnetic fields and snakes can feel heat and bees can see, you know, you know ultraviolet light and all those things are so, like, there's a massive data out there microwaves x-rays all of it right and we can only perceive a fragment of it because of our five senses and how they're attuned mm. right so this game of getting out of our psychology is then getting more into a self-aware system is that we get upstream of our umbels we can perceive more of what's going on in real time and then it becomes a little bit like neo in kind of you know matrix and bullet time right everything slows down far less surprises us <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, I'm in the right place at the right time to catch that and put it back on the table or to have that conversation and check in with you or to offer that joke or that movement or, and that's really where things get interesting. And then you're, you're you know, you're approaching a sort of cognitive event horizon, uh, as it were. The world slows down and becomes a lot more fun.
1: I could listen I th- to you talk for hours and mm-hmm. I, lo- I love this. I'm just fascinated by this perspective. I think it's missing from my field, the health and fitness field, which is why I'm trying to help bring that to the health and fitness field to, like you said, like stop focusing on this superficial, start focusing on this embodied cognition. Have you read Neuroscience for Leadership by Dr. Tara Swart, MIT neuroscientist? Mm-mm. No, it's a fascinating book. I don't, I'm not going to get into it, but she talks about, How testosterone and cortisol, if how basically are hormones, and very similar to what you said, how are hormones, how are neurotransmitters? She even makes an argument. She wrote the book with like two other people. I forget exactly who they were, but how it was a quip, right? But she was saying like before world leader sits down to negotiate something very important, make sure their cortisol is low, their oxytocin is high, so that they're actually connecting with people and not... You know, disturbing or not letting their physiology, their less than ideal physiology, mm-hmm. create bad situations in the world. Uh, just curious, but Jamie, let's bring this down to a more practical level. You provided such an amazing overview. We've talked about psychedelics and exercise and sleep and you know this <laughs> idea of embodied cognition and precognition, how our bodies show up or how our, our consciousness, the I, the you know, is a bit late to the party. Let's give some practical steps. What can you share from your book? If I am hearing this for the first time and my mind is blown, what steps should I start to take? Obviously, mm-hmm. exercise and, and some of the other things that you mentioned, but could you map out a kind of optimal, like a beginner's optimal Performance regimen, peak performance regimen.
0: Yeah, I mean we we can do this super simple, which is you know so simple that no one can make money selling it, and most consumers conditioned to want to buy things for to fill their lacks and needs are going to be somewhat underwhelmed, right? But it's fundamentally sleep, sleep more, you know, move often, be grateful, make love, right, eat real food, and pay attention. And each of those is a life's work and all of them foundation on the supportive. So if you really did those things, your life's going to rock. And if you miss them, any, even one of those, it's going to be that much harder and you're going to need to compensate in other places. Said a little bit more complicatedly. So hopefully it satisfies the, you know, the, the tech nerds out here you know, we live trapped in a monophasic culture, meaning it just, there's one channel of waking consciousness and it's the prison house of our neurotic cells. It's why we're stressed, anxious, depressed, um, and all, all those things, right? One in four of us are on psychiatric meds. So clearly it's out of whack, right? right? So the first step would be, how do I engage in state management, meaning changing the frequencies of my consciousness deliberately, repeatedly, and cyclically, and how do I practice active recovery? So, what might that look like? Let's just assume all of us have some block between six and ten hours a day of like busting our ass, making a living, and providing. Let's just assume that for, the, for as a generic placeholder. So, when we're not doing those things, what are we doing? If you can control the first ninety minutes of your morning, meaning you don't wake up stressed, hitting an alarm, stumbling into the shower, going downstairs, microwaving a cup of coffee, and picking something off, and off, off you go into the into the gridlock. Right? Control your first ninety minutes. Right, and have it be deliberate. Have a nice transition from sleep to waking. Engage with some movement, with some hot water, or you know, some form of tea. Nourish yourself in the way that's right for you. I personally don't like to eat a lot until like mid-morning, but I like to have something to kick me off when I first wake up. Move. Engage in minimum fifteen minutes of like conscious, deliberate movement. Whether that's yoga, whether that's calisthenics, whatever the hell it is, do it. Right. Engage in something that's mildly uplifting and stimulating. Stay the hell off your phone and out of your email right own that space right I and mess up you, on if,
1: that one <laughs> right if you
0: own the first 90 minutes of your day that alone i said the other things right of move more you know eat well and sleep a lot that kind of stuff like but if you do those things and you own your first 90 you can handle a hell of a lot more the next is that that would be like daily practices once a week have a sabbath right it's baked into the jewish christian tradition leverage it it could be any day of the week it could be tgif it could be saturday it could be sunday whatever but have a day that you dedicate to the highest and best use of your life. We only get these things. And then it's a cold reboot, whatever your philosophy, right? So have a Sabbath and it can be, I go rock climbing every Sunday. Awesome. I go water skiing. I go rock out to a live music every Saturday night. It's my practice. Make it. Make it where there's a change of state once a month, once a, once a quarter, once a year. Like your once a year should be some blow out the pipes week that has less than a 50% chance of success. You know, that should be your bucket list shit. You know, once the season, shoot the goddamn moon. If you're not getting outside yourself in meaningful and compelling ways, you're cheating yourself of what you're here to do. And so daily practices are the ones where I need to use all my behavior hacks and accountability and all those things to ensure that I do them. They're my good foundational ones, and I might be tempted to cut them. But you get to your once a weeks, your once a months, your once a year. Those things are so goddamn awesome. I actually have to put in checks and balances to make sure I don't do them all the time right? And if you combine those two things, you build up your foundation, right? So you're tuning your nervous system, you're creating greater body brain integration, right? You're able to hold more juice without spilling it, right? Or overclocking your processor. And if you have those recurring Non-ordinary states. However, you're prompting them. It could be a nine-day, it could be a weekend-long or a nine-day meditation retreat. It could be going to an ecstatic dance class or whatever, whatever, whatever. It just doesn't matter. They're all here and they're all available these days. But make sure you're ringing that bell with increasing vigor once you know in periodic means. And then it's like a potter, you know, with those kick wheels, whether you know those old ones that aren't electric, you know, you, big ass round stones, and you kick it and it starts spinning, and you kick it, and it's got so much momentum that you can then. Throw a pot, right? Oh, right? That's what our practices are like. It's like a kick wheel for a potter. You start slow and it's a pain in the ass, and that's your daily practices, but you keep at it, you keep kicking, you keep kicking. And the next thing you know, you got that thing humming and then it can power through a lot of the things that would knock you on your ass before you put these practices in place.
1: I love that. Absolutely. And it's all about taking that action. And just to be clear, I kill it on the, the exercise and nutrition part, but I am checking my email and on my phone usually pretty early. I have a question about morning rituals. I love the one that you just stated. I've had Hal Elrod. Are you familiar with him at all? Okay. So he has this thing called the miracle morning and. Robert Kiyosaki and all these people love his book and love his methods. In there, Uh he talks about a few different things. But I'm I'm curious, a lot of people are into doing affirmations. A lot of people are into journaling. Uh Is that not embodied cognition enough? What are your feelings about some of the those types of morning rituals?
0: I mean, bottom line is if it works for you and it sticks, go for it. I'm a little cynical, skeptical of the kind of post-it note affirmation shit and the general kind of pop psych side of things, because once again, that's often trying to solve the problem at the level that created which isn't to say like there is some kind of subtle neurolinguistic linguistic repatterning you can do with that kind of stuff. Personally, that's not been the thing I've been drawn to. I would much rather go with dynamite and, and absolutely no question <laughs> as to the breakthrough and the insight and then come back and integrate. Um, I mean, I'm basically, if it's not super fun, if I feel like the oughts or the shoulds, I'm terrible at. So I've never been able to stick with any of those things. But I always look back and I'm like, well, what are the things I've repeatedly, you know, effortlessly done in my life? And it's the things that give me a hit. It's the things that are really fun. So like I will stand up paddle all day long, but I will not ever go to a goddamn Stairmaster, you know, like so, so those kinds of things, I would love to go out and dance to righteous music and have all kinds of breakthroughs and insights as far as like, Oh, the lyrics or the music or that, you know, the intersection of just moving your body and working it out. I'll do that. But I, you know, you have to put a gun to my head to get me sitting on a meditation cushion on a daily basis. Although I have just signed up for a friend's course, And I think I'm signing up for 22 days straight of meditation, and it's 90 minutes a day, which quietly terrifies me. So I'll let you know. I could be like, dude, I was completely wrong, and I've been missing the boat all along. But as far as, like, I'm just not a fan of pop psychology that sells and promises six easy steps or three easy steps to everything you've ever wanted none of the pain and suffering. You know, I'm much more... Stoic side and I mean, and like your life experience, I mean, what the fuck, right? You didn't sign up for that. That happened and life happens and it's not always pretty. And the idea that, that there's some either perfect way the universe works and there's people on YouTube presuming to tell you exactly how it does work or, you know, if you just do these three things, it'll all work out forever and you'll be, you know, happy, wealthy and wise. I think people are massively overstepping their mandate on that. I think it's like, look, the human experience is baffling. You know, I mean, Hemingway said the world breaks everyone, right? And some of us are stronger in the broken places. How do we be those people, the ones who celebrate the brokenness and who can sit in that with courage and conviction? So to me, like, that's the point of shifting our states of consciousness is not to escape it. It's so that when we do come back and shoulder our loads again and keep climbing, that we have just enough, you know, light and sense of vision to keep going. You know, it's like guiding in the backcountry. You know, there's times where if you're lost in the forest, it is soul destroying and you don't know where you are and every step you second guess, right? But if you get a moment to climb up the peak and you punch up above the clouds and you're like, Oh, we're in this valley and ah, there's that pass. And on the other side, man, are meadows and pastures. Then you go back down in the forest and, and it's just not as hard. You know where you're going. Right. And so that's the dialectic. That's the balance, which is seek peak states, right, to give you the vision and perspective to come back and do our work down in the lowlands, right, where we can breathe and where things grow. And it can be hard, dark, and scary down there. But, right, when, once we've glimpsed more, we know why we're doing it.
1: Seek Peak States. I love it. Jamie Wheel, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom. And it's been an enlightening conversation. And if you're listening right now, I highly urge you to get Stealing Fire, the book by Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler. If this speaks to you, if you're more interested in Seeking these peak states instead of the pop psychology of doing the five-minute journal, which so many people have recommended, and I tried, and I was like, What the hell? What is that supposed to do? I'm gonna I can stretch for 10 minutes and feel much better and be a better person for all the people around me, and then then it didn't work for me in short. So if you're after optimal performance, peak performance, peak states, so that you can be the best version of yourself so you can unlock your potential. I highly recommend this book. Jamie, where should they find out more about you and the Flow Genome Project?
0: Sure. Well, the simplest will be Stealing Fire Book Dot com uh, that page is going up in just a few days and there's a chance to pre-order it comes out in February and for folks that pre-order and sign up that we're going to be putting out like chapter excess there was so much stuff that awesome stuff that didn't make it into the book so we'll be doing releases on that we'll be doing interviews with all you know some of the amazing people show up and get featured in the book so just fun stuff to kind of feed the Stoke until February when it does come out bottom line is is this book is for anybody. That's been a closet seeker and has not known the whys and wherefores of all their goofy decisions that their friends, partners, spouses, parents have always second guessed and wondered, what the hell are you up to? This is a chance to validate it with like blue chip research. It's what, you know, what's happening with the Navy SEALs, what's happening with Richard Branson, you know, Elon Musk. Like we're just breaking it all down and, and outing that story. And it's also a book to give to those people in your life who never knew what the hell you were up to or why and say, read this, get me, and come along. So that's the promise. Uh, it's filled with ripping stories. This is 20 years of research. And really, it's the lineage story that we came- found ourselves stumbling into. And now we had to write to say, hey, man, this is who we are and where we're from. So that's what it's Woo! about.
1: Powerful way to end the interview. I can't wait to dive into the book. <laughs> if you're interested in getting Stealing Fire, the link will be on the show notes stealingfirebook.com. And Jamie, Thanks again, my friend. It's been an amazing and inspiring
0: conversation. For sure, Ted. Thanks for having me.
1: That wraps up another episode of Legendary Life. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And I want to challenge you right now to make sure you do something in your life. Listen to what Jamie said about how to take your life to the next level and what to implement and why recovery is important and how Getting away from your routine is key to this process of personal growth and discovery and upgrading your performance in your life and your work. I know you want to be a high performer, and I want to tell you that you have it in you, but you must do the right things because that is the difference. If you think of me as a high performer, I'm no different than you other than I've chosen to spend my time doing things that level up my life, like seeking flow states. Why do you think I'm traveling around the world right now? Why do you think I'm having these amazing experiences? Why do you think I'm training Muay Thai or Thai boxing in Thailand? Why do you think I went to Hong Kong and just traveled around the city and why I went to Saigon? And I put myself in these situations because they make me step up And I can't wait to do more public speaking and more traveling and more martial arts and learning new skills and putting myself in a position that really activates my brain and gets me in a state of high performance. And I want to challenge you to do the same in your life because it's possible you have it in you. You just have to take action. That's all I've got for today. And again, if you want the most comprehensive free science-based supplement guide that I've ever seen that tells you exactly what supplement to take, why you should consider taking it, because not everybody should take every supplement, how much to take, so the dosage, whether there's any specific interactions you need to be aware of and what supplement I recommend. In other words, what brand I recommend, go to www.legendarylifepodcast.com Board slash supplement guide and again i've got a supplement section on healing from injuries blood sugar control how to lower your blood pressure naturally how to boost your workout performance and grow more muscle and i have a whole section on nootropics and it is an amazing guide i'm very proud of it and again if you want it it's there for you for free all you got to do is get it hope you enjoyed this Speak to you soon and have an amazing week.